surprises are always to be found where we least expect them. That is, of course, the definition of a surprise in itself. But in my experience, surprises, or the most valuable ones, are those to be found on trails beyond the point, or just beyond the point, you've so far travelled. So it is, in my experience, in two cases since Christmas 2020. The first is Oliver Soden's biography of composer Michael Tippett. Many have raved about the publication, and with good reason. It is a compelling read because the writing is so active and urgent. Soden tells a cracking story, rooting the reader in the action in ways that comparatively niche histories rarely achieve. I'm only partway through it, but what surprised me the most in the first few pages was a mildly embarrassing revelation, learning that Tippett had at one stage lived in Suffolk a handful of miles away from where I went to school. I had never realised, in fact, I had never known. Uh, celebrity had been even closer geographically to me than Benjamin Britten, way over on the east coast of Suffolk. Had I had reason to go further south and Lorgel, and possibly a little bit east as well, I'm not entirely sure, and spend more time in the Sudbury direction, I hope you're appreciating the detail, then maybe I would have known about Tippett when Tippett was alive. Maybe. It's a bit of a stretch. Stick with me. Similarly, with the subject of this thoroughly good classical music podcast, the late Stephen Dodgson's rarely performed opera Margaret Catchpole documents the real-life, nearly real-life story of a young Suffolk girl who worked for the Cobbold family. She fell in love with a ne'er-do-well, William Lord, headed off to London in pursuit of him on a stolen horse and ended up being caught, tried and sentenced to death for it. The horse stealing. Her subsequent reprieve saw her sent to Australia instead of the gallows. The four-act opera was first performed in Hadley in 1979, just south of Ipswich, and after some tweaks by Dodgson at the Wangford Festival in Suffolk in 1983. And here is the other surprise. Wangford is to be found en route between Southwold and Lowestoft. Lowestoft being the birthplace of Benjamin Britten, and, if you haven't already realised by now, a thoroughly good destination if ever there was one. The thing is, I'd never even heard of Wankford. I thought I knew most of the music festivals in and about Suffolk. I'd not heard of the Wankford Festival, and had I bothered to go north on the A12 from Southwold to Lowestoft, then maybe I would have realised I was passing through Wangford and maybe I would have worked that out. Anyway, the additional surprise is discovering a new composer, and there is something really quite exciting about that. Some A composer that has already died, but whose back catalogue is yet to be explored. That is is a tantalising opportunity, and that is a reminder of, kind of a reminder, of how I remember feeling when I first discovered Benjamin Britten. Undiscovered composers, discovered after their death, are always a bit of an exciting prospect. So it is the chamber opera about the life and times of a Suffolk girl performed in Suffolk that brings an unknown composer to my attention. Dodgson, born in London in 1924, served in the Royal Navy, trained at the Royal College of Music and subsequently taught at the college in the years that followed. He wrote more than 250 works in multiple genres, including radio incidental music for the BBC. Dodgson's first guitar concerto was premiered at the BBC Proms in 1956, 
played by a 17-year-old John Williams who stepped in for Julian Bream, for whom the work was originally intended. Stephen Dodson's wife Jane introduces the recording of Margaret Catchpole, released by Naxos in 2021. The subsequent podcast discussion features the recordings conductor Julian Perkins and soprano Kate Howden. Well, I lived in Suffolk and my mother gave me a copy, an early edition of Margaret Catchpole in my teens. And then when I eventually met Stephen, he read it and got completely hooked on it too. And when he received a commission for a Suffolk opera for a Suffolk Music Society, he decided that Margaret Catchpole was the obvious answer and found the perfect librettist in Ronald Fletcher who was a local historian and already had written a book about Richard Cobbold, who wrote the Margaret Catchpole story. It was eventually performed in Suffolk twice at different local festivals. And now it's received the ideal situation being performed at Snape on the very marshes that Stephen loved walking on. And and the opinion is that he actually captured the atmosphere of those marshes in the opera. Although based on a real story of a lady who lived at the end of the 18th century, is uh, really a fable by Richard Cobbold. It tells the story of Margaret, a poor woman who's brought up a, as a labourer, really, on a farm, who gets to be in the employment of a fancy family in Ipswich, the Cobbolds. She works there happily, but eventually she, she wants to follow her love. She steals a horse. She goes to London and she's caught and sentenced to death. Her sentence is commuted, and the Cobbold family really helped with that by putting in a good word for her. Um, but she escapes from prison. And of course, this is another capital offence. So she's going to the shore to meet her beloved Will. He gets shot, she's captured again, and transported to Australia. And it's there that she does find true happiness eventually on the banks of the Hawkesbury River. So it's a tale of somebody who comes from nothing gives a lot away by uh, committing crimes, but eventually finds happiness. What attracted you, um, Kate, to, to participating in this project? What, what sort of excited you about it? Um, well, I'd sung some of Dodgson's songs before, um, songs with uh, piano and clarinet. I'd recorded those a few years before. Um, and Jane Dodgson, who's Stephen Dodgson, the composer's um, widow, she um, seemed to like what I did with those songs. So she asked me to come do Margaret Catchpole. Um, I think she's a really interesting character. I think she, like Julian had said, she tries to, um, to 
to kind of turn Will Lord into something that he's not. She's convinced that he he has good within him. Um, and also a big a big part, to be honest, that attracted me is that my one of my first singing teachers who I was very close to actually sang the um, sang Margaret Catchpole in the original, the first production of it in Suffolk, which was Amaral Gunson. Um, so that was a nice, nice connection there as well. Um, yeah, there's just a lot to do with the character and um, she gets lots of different music. She gets to have fight kind of scenes with Will Lord. She gets to have more contemplative um, looking up at the moon scenes, which again, that music comes back at the end um, when she's looking at the moon in Australia and um, thinking of her homeland. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a lot within the within the role. I like to see you sort of moving around, swaying from side to side when you're talking about fight scenes, which leads me to believe that that you actually <laughs> quite liked doing the fight scenes, uh, even though it's very good. It's a it's you a mess of key. I, I knew that I knew that I know the tenor that that played Will Lord very well. We studied together at the National Opera Studio, so it was quite fun <laughs> to do those scenes with him. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about him? Because the music that I've heard, uh, he, I hear bits of Britain, uh, but I also hear a sort of... Um, it's a very accessible sound. That's that's the only word that I can start with, really. Can you tell me a, a bit about him, one of you? Well, Julian, you, you knew him, didn't you? I, I, I had the good fortune of knowing him a bit. And I think what attracts so many people to his music is, the, is a sort of tonal basis to it. So it is, for want of an overused word, is it is accessible. And he wrote in so many different genres, so obviously he wrote operas. He wrote a lot of music for wind band and for piano and his wife, who was the driving force behind this whole project. Um, Kate mentioned him, Jane Dodgson, um, is a harpsichordist. So he's written a lot of music for harpsichord and recorders. So he's written all sorts of music. And I think he's the only contemporary composer who's written a concerto for gamba and orchestra. So he was very experimental as well. And I think, um, he had a great wit. I think people love the wit and the charm in his music. So I think the fact that he wrote in lots of different styles, lots of different instruments or, you know, genres and the sort of the wit. And he's not trying to reinvent the wheel in his music. He is just writing in the style he wants to write, which, as you say, John, is partly derived from Britain. I think also sort of some... Janacek in there and some Vorjak. It's, it's a wonderful sort of collage of musical styles which he makes his own. How did you come to his music then? When were you through, first introduced? How, how, sort of tell me about that. It was through the early music sort of mafia world. Um, <laughs> mafia. <laughs> wow, I've uh, heard it called all sorts of different things, but well, yeah. okay. I meant yeah. in the nicest possible way. <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> yeah, that's what a lot of people say when, when they talk about the mafia. <laughs> Yeah, you can see me blushing now. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, my makeup. Um, so, uh, Stephen, I met him at the Handel House Museum, which is a very small museum in Brook Street where Handel lived. 
and I was performing on the harpsichord, um, which I also play. And Stephen and Jane were there. And I recall, this was a while ago, um, I was a student and, you know, um, saying hello. And I, I think they soon cottoned on to the fact that one of my great um, weaknesses is food. So they invited me around for lunch. Um, and I think they were sort of slightly sort of perplexed that I asked for thirds. <laughs> but, <laughs> Seems a little pushy. <laughs> a little presumptuous. <laughs> I mean, the point is they're wonderfully... Um, they were a wonderfully hospitable couple, um, lived a beautiful house in Barnes, and Stephen introduced me to a lot of his music, and I subsequently recorded some music which he revised, um, some music for the clavichord, which is, as you probably know, a very sort of quiet instrument which coexisted with the harpsichord. So I recorded these two clavichord suites um, by Stephen for him, um, which was a very great honour. And then um, he wrote a very short piece for my early music group for voice and strings and then through the years i was always um eating his food and playing his music <laughs> <laughs> what a delightful arrangement uh what yeah, do I you find order, yes. <laughs> what, what do you find you respond to in his music most kate um i found it quite um text-led um which I enjoyed. So there's actually quite a few parts in the opera that are almost like um, recitative. Um, and yeah, I enjoyed that being able to really um, get into the character of it. Um, there, are, there are also some quite uh, kind of more sweeping, broad gestures um, that are quite fun to get into. I have a kind of aria in the, um, the court scene towards the end um when she actually is sentenced to death before she has a reprieve um where i'm kind of saying i don't i don't mind i i'll take what you give me but now that will lord's dead there's nothing for me here now so that's fine um which that was that was always my favorite part to sing uh because it's almost as if there's a part where almost the sun comes out where she's kind of (laughs) enlightened almost to this fact um and yeah a lot of there are a lot of moments like that where I almost saw images as to things like that um so yeah there's and there's a lot of variety within it uh lots of different styles so I really enjoyed that you both perceive to be his distinctive characteristics as a as a writer as a composer um i'm not sure because actually the the gypsy songs that i recorded before the ones with um piano and clarinet were quite different they were quite um magical almost and almost a bit spooky um so the music was actually quite different um from from a lot of Margaret Catchpole. Um, like I said, probably the fact that it's quite text-led um, is is a link between the two. But um, Julian, you're more familiar with um, more of his wind music as well, aren't you? Well, well yes, keyboard music. Um, I mean, you took words out of my mouth and saying text-led. A lot of it is set 
you know, syllabically. And then there are some moments where you get longer sort of lines. And I think for me also, in it, further to what Kate said, I, I think there's sort of the music changes. It's very mercurial. It's very quick silver changes of mood. So you suddenly get this wonderfully sort of moment of oasis where, you know, Margaret Catchball might be singing of her love for Will Lord. And then suddenly this sort of febrile, nervous music comes in as, you know, and he appears in in the background. It's very, it's like a sort of real mosaic of colours. So, I mean, I think, as Kate said, it's text-led and it's very, um, it's very mercurial as well. And the instrumentation is very, I mean, it's very concise as well. The instrumentation for this opera is a small chamber um, orchestra. I mean, I say orchestra, it's almost like an ensemble with strings, harp, including the harp and winds and horn. So there's no, um, there's no, nothing, un, there's no excess baggage in music. It's quite sort of highly wrought as well. Uh, you recorded this at Snape, was it in 2020 or 2019? 2019, thank goodness. I think we wouldn't have managed to do it in 2020. Mm. Um, so yeah, pre-COVID. I think, I think <laughs> I'm right in saying it was a Britain Pierce studio. I sort That's of recognised right. the interior, and I recognised from the from the promotional film different parts of the of the site that we used for interview with Stephen Dodgson's wife. Um, what was the, what was the recording process like? We tried to get large chunks of music down. I mean, as you've seen, the recording takes up three CDs, so I think it was important to you know have large takes. Um, so we used for rehearsal process as a recording process as well. So it was quite an intense few days. We had a few days in London, of course, to rehearse, and we met up, you know, Kate and I met up beforehand. Um, so the rehearsal process was also the recording process. That was a way to make it practical. Um, but then we, yeah, to, to, I think the danger of recording is that it can lose all its spontaneity if it's sort of edited to the nth degree. So I think what we've hopefully achieved in this recording is a sense of performance because we also used the live performance as a basis. I think that was the sort of the carcass of a recording, if you like. The carcass. <laughs> yeah. so it's very, I can't think, wow, it's you really do word. use quite evocative words, don't you? I Mafia. So <laughs> yeah. Mafia and carcass. Um, oh, no. Well, let's just gloss over that, I, Kate. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> that I'm, I'm interested in the, in the idea that, uh, that rehearsals are also recorded, and I wonder what impact that has on you as a performer, Kate? Or do you just, like, forget when something's being recorded and you just get on with it? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you kind of wish that the things that were in rehearsals had been recorded because <laughs> nerves and things get the best of you. So, um, yeah, and also it's a, it's a very long sing um, because it's obviously three CDs. Um, so, and she's in a lot of the scenes. So... So is that is it quite demand is is that then quite demanding for you? Yes. Well, we had the rehearsals and then we had concert on the Friday and then we recorded bits on the weekend, um, both all day, both days. Um, so by the end of that, I was quite tired, but um, yeah, I think it was well well paced. That like Julian said, it was still um, spontaneous enough. Uh, and at four act, I'm, I must uh, extend an apology if you can hear a cat. I have a, an old cat that is outside the, the office door. It. Oh, that's all right then. That's fine. Uh, but we have, a, we have a routine here for retrieving the cat should he interrupt <laughs> any recording. Um, and I have a red button here that I just have to press. Um, 
is the is the scale and the length of the opera does that make it sort of difficult to perform especially i mean obviously now because we can't perform anything but i wonder whether um yeah is this as is this as much as we will get of it do you think or do you think there will be someone who will want to stage it i think there's a great hope that it will be staged and with all these different characters in the opera you know 15 we had about 15 singers i think so it's probably very conducive for a music college to put on because, yeah. you know, it has, it has a very nuanced writing for lots of different types of singers. Um, and, of course, it'd be great if an opera house did. It'd be more expensive to put on than, you know, um, a lot of opera operas where, where there might be just four or five characters. So the hope is very much that it has an afterlife. Very much. That was very much one of the intentions of the Stephen Dodgson Trust in supporting this whole venture, that... It does. This is seen as the starting point. And my view is that it would be great for a, a sort of a postgraduate music course to put on because of all the different characters in the opera. Um, Kate, what do you uh, when you reflect on it? What what challenges do you think this presented you with? Yeah, I was actually listening to the CD yesterday and um, had some fond memories of of recording it. Um, Mostly just stamina, that it's such a long sing. Um, and also trying to make her as a character come across um, not too naive uh, because she does just keep falling for Will Lord's um, tricks, basically. Um, and I'm not sure, because it is a real story, mm. um, and this did happen, she did get transported to Australia. I'm not sure that... Um, he necessarily didn't love her or anything. I think he just wasn't going to change. Um, and that's so a, that's, that's a complex. Uh, presumably, that sort of nuanced uh, perspective is, um, or that rather, that nuanced characterization is more demanding to convey when you're just recording. Yeah, but but a lot of it came from I think came, think came from the performance as well. Um, and I just tried to pretend like I was still performing it um, and give it 100% energy at all times, hence why I was very tired at the end of the weekend. But, um, yeah, so so that was actually not too much of a problem for me. And and it's an exciting story. There's a lot that happens um, over the three CDs. So so there's a lot to convey. And what about what about you, Julian? What, what challenges did this sort of bring about for you? I think, I mean, as Kate says, the stamina was a large part of it and pacing oneself. Um, I mean, you know, to Kate and everyone else's great credit, you know, they did have that stamina. Was, I don't think anyone marked, really. I think they were just, everyone was giving it their all. Um, so I think, yeah, pacing was a large part and organising the rehearsal process so that you've got large chunks of music um, in some sort of logical order without asking a singer to sort of have long of three session recording days which would go down like um you know a lead balloon should we say <laughs> so yeah i think and also having that sense of performance in recording i think is very important um i hope we achieved that um being sort of allied to a real performance so i think the, the biggest challenge for me was trying to have that spontaneity where people felt they could take risks and have a sort of safe environment for doing so um i mean sometimes for me there's this sort of tendency for people to 
say, oh, I don't like recordings, you can't take risks. But for me, it's the opposite. I think because you get, you know, you do get a second chance, maybe not a third chance. <laughs> you can you can take risks. Wow. <laughs> no, I just, I mean, <laughs> I, I only say third chance because we had a lot to get down. Says the man um, who asked for three servings. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, seems a bit rich. <laughs> uh, <touché. laughs> um, so, yeah, but I think, I think the adrenaline, you know, adrenaline goes a long way. <laughs> Does that mean that if if you are uh, adapting that kind of recording technique or that recording process, that you have to create, you have to uh, uh, adopt a different approach to the practice? Um, you know, do you have to uh, do you have to step into a recording studio with a um, with a different mindset? I think you have to step in. Yeah, you have to go in saying that within this sort of period of time, you have to get from x to y um and if you know it'd be nice if we get z done as well but just being very practical and saying okay we've got that in the can and we have to move on and understand where um where to actually sort of rehearse as such and where to trust that what you've done is what you wanted to do because it's very difficult to it's very difficult to keep a sense of perspective when you yes. record you, know, yeah. you have to trust and luckily we had a very experienced um recording team um jeremy hayes and his, his colleagues so we were very fortunate that you know we i didn't like cable i thought we were, in, we were in safe hands yeah definitely i definitely uh, felt like i could take risks and mm. um it wouldn't slow down the process yeah yeah and i think yeah, i mean i i love the risk you took kate with that scream um oh, still haunts me i I don't know who anyone who can scream like you. I mean, that's just meant as a compliment. You can do amazing things and not scream. But it just, it was so, every time you did it, it was, it was so powerful. Um, there's an edit so, point there. There's, there's clearly an edit point there where there needs to be a clip. Uh, so thank you for flagging that. That's very good work. Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, I've now lost my thread. I've now lost my thread. But there was, there was something about... Um, I, oh yeah, so in the recording process, I I uh, I wonder whether because it is so so big, uh, so much of it that it's quite difficult to lose one's way. I know you talked about perspective, but but presumably it's quite easy to allow all of this to just completely consume you, uh, and then you don't really know whether you've achieved what you wanted to achieve in the first place. So do you have to do you have to sort of adapt your expectations as you go through the process? That's a really good question. Um, I wish I knew the answer. And what I do, <laughs> what, what I do we can is wait. I, we can wait. Don't worry. Well, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I I always make, I do my best to sort of have a very um, detailed rehearsal schedule when I go in or recording schedule. The two are sort of uh, linked. Um, and I, I, I allow room for musicians, my colleagues, to sort of put, give an input, but at the end of the day, just make sure that we have long takes. I think for work like this, it's very important to have long takes because it's so easy, you know, for the second triangle player to say, all in bar 34, my second play would be, I didn't quite hit it right. We didn't have a triangle, by the way, I'm just saying. No, I'm um, <laughs> it's very easy to get caught up in tiny, minuscule details. Um, and I think that's why you need an experienced recording producer to send, to know that you get the overall architecture of the work. So I think what I hope we we did is that we recorded large chunks and when we just focused in on, honed in on just two or three parts which we could repeat. 
um, rather than obsessing about every tiny little detail, which wouldn't serve the overall sort of drama of the music. Okay, when you listened to it back yesterday, um, this is a hugely uncomfortable question, which is why I'm going to ask it. But um, uh, when you listened back to it yesterday, uh, what elements, aside from the scream, did you feel most proud of? I felt proud that the the parts that I enjoyed acting the most, as I said, the court scene and um, places like that, I, I think that, that I could hear what I intended to do. I think I could, I could imagine the scene and um, that that came across really well. Um, so I was, I was pleased, most pleased with that. I'm fascinated by that. So I'm fascinated by that slight sort of disconnection, that, that thing that you articulate there where you, because only people like you would experience that, that sort of weird thing of, I remember what I intended. I remembered what I was doing there, and now I'm hearing it, and it it all seems quite joined up. That's is that a pleasant experience? Uh, if if it turns out, <laughs> yeah. <how you> do. <laughs> right, yeah. rewarding was having such a range of voices to work with in this opera because for casting it's very important to think an opera to have sort of a wide age range as well so that um, we had young voices um, you know right you know young stars like Kate and then older more established singers it's wonderful to have that sort of um, rich canvas of voices to work with and I think that for me was a great pleasure so um, yeah I hope everyone enjoys it uh, what about you, Kate? Is there anything else you'd like to say? Yeah, I was I was thinking that yesterday, listening back to it, um, that it was that it was a real pleasure to to work with such a mix of people and in the breaks and everything here um, from people like Matthew Brock about his career and um, things like that. So it was it was it was really interesting to have such a mix of people. I agree. I'm reminded that actually. Being in Snape, where you recorded it, there's also something about the surroundings that when you do take a break, it can really recharge you in a way that I imagine in a London studio, for example, um, you're not really going to have that experience. Yeah, definitely. And some of the music, I think, um, in in some of the, the Crusoe music, for example, who's the kind of um, madman that lives uh, by the river... Um, you can really hear the the surroundings, the environment almost mm. in his music. You can hear the reeds and the and the river mm. and everything, and um, sort of spooky, mystical atmosphere. Um, so I think that was quite special recording it there and having that sort of that surrounding around us as well. It mm, seems a really uh, it seems a really rotten question to ask, but it's a nice way of winding things up, uh, or rather winding things to a close, as opposed to winding things up. Um, uh, what are you? When when are your uh, plans? What am I trying to say? When do you uh, anticipate that your musical experience and your musical work will will come back online? In terms of you know lockdown and post lockdown and easing restrictions. 
Yeah. <laughs> I know, but well, I mean, I have to ask. I'm, I wonder whether you have any sense. Well, the, goal, the goalposts keep moving, don't they, as we've, we've experienced. I mean, like Kate, I'm sure we've, you know, we've all done our fair share of online concerts, um, which has been a good thing to do. I mean, I think people are suffering with a digital fatigue now um, with that. Um, yeah, I mean, it looked, the problem is the science and reality don't always link up. So if the vaccinations hopefully are successful, it will take a while for confidence to return for audiences to go back. But I mean, hopefully, you know, I would have hoped that towards the summer things might start regenerating. I mean, I've been doing some, like Kate, I'm sure, some sort of socially distanced concerts. Um, how, how they managed to make it work financially is beyond me. But, you know, concerts like St George's Bristol, where you have like, a fifth of the audience than usual and you repeat the concert i think if people i think the format of short repeated concerts um in socially distant spaces will be the way for audiences and musicians to have the confidence to return to this sort of what i you know this burning human need for live performance yeah, absolutely um, absolutely kate do you have um uh do you have a view I'm hoping you do. Otherwise, it's going to be yeah, it's going to result I mean, in I silence. I haven't done that much um, online performances, to be honest, because I find it quite um, alienating. And I've realised the thing I miss the most is making music with other people. Mm. Um, there was a moment there where I, I thought I, you were. Go- there was a moment there where I thought you were going to say, "I haven't really done any because nobody's asked me," and that 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 could have been a really awkward. It's too expensive. <laughs> yeah, nobody can afford me. <laughs> But but you didn't go um, there, which is a shame. And a, and a lot of the um, work that I was doing before was actually overseas, so I can't do that anymore. Um, I think, like Julian said, it's going to be um, a while until at least the summer, um, and things aren't going that well in Europe either. Even in Australia, which is um, where I'm from, um, people can go to concerts and performances, um, and they have almost no coronavirus now. Um, but a lot of people, for example, my parents had tickets to something recently and they didn't want to go because mm. it was um, 75% capacity they were going to pack it to and they said, oh, I don't feel comfortable mm. doing that. So I think it's it's going to be a while until audiences feel safe to come back. But um, it's, fu- it's funny. I, I um, asked the question, I suppose, from the perspective of... of- assuming that just so long as they open as long as i can go along to a concert then we're kind of back to normal i that's a that's a terrible way of putting it but but it's interesting to hear you sort of talk longer tail and about the the importance of the confidence of the uh, the confidence of the audience to step back into the the auditorium just because i feel comfortable doing so doesn't necessarily mean that the majority will yeah, and it depends on the size of the venue as well. Somewhere like Wigmore Hall has an established audience and they will go back um, when they can. Um, quite a lot of elderly people, but um, so that's another challenge for them. But um, but then they will be back. This is the, the, but this is the thing that I, I sort of think about that and go, well, and I may be oversimplifying, but they will be vaccinated. So I sort of think, you're vaccinated. Yeah. Go, go, go. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is true. I, I have some elderly relatives. And you know, they're sort of saying, you know, carpe diem, let's just enjoy life while we can. Yes. So providing that, you know, as things have been sensibly organised, I think a lot of older people will be just 
dying to go back to concerts because you know just to enjoy life while they can without sounding too morose about it i'd I'd also heard on times radio somebody saying um about how in some respects this period of time is emboldening and empowering that generation which had previously gone overlooked because now suddenly currency will be are you immunized are you vaccinated and if you are then you are front of the queue finally that generation is front of the queue um and and they're the ones who will be uh more as i mean again i'm oversimplifying this but but you know more resilient as a result of this uh it's fascinating um thank you very much for your time i really appreciate it Take it hard, lad. Words not empty. Words catch not empty. It's empty enough for me. No lad, she'll come round. Everything comes to him who waits. Oh, yeah.